People will come and tell you about mental health saying, I oh, meditate and drink more water and do a juice cleanse in Bali. And I'm like, fuck that, man. That's, that's not it. Like you can do all those things. What, what healing is, what growth is, is when you're being real with what you're actually trying to solve. You have no idea, no idea what people go through. And I will devote every second of my life if I get through this to making sure that no one has to go through this again. Mitch Wallace, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, society's become much more comfortable talking about mental health in the last five years than it ever has, in my opinion. But often what we don't talk about is knowing whether we are healthy mentally. I wonder your business, and I'd love to hear about Heart of My Sleeve. There's there's a lot in that that works with leadership groups and and cultures more broadly. Can you put some more colour in that? We're investing so much time and energy in talking-based initiatives. That's great, but it's not really creating a culture of psychological safety. A lot of the current solutions are saying, let's just raise awareness of what is anxiety, what is depression, but then no one knows what to do about that. Um, and or when we do have conversations about how to have conversations, we teach people how to talk, not connect. Because the single greatest insight to a therapeutic conversation is, in order to be helpful, you need to redefine your definition of success from how well do you fix it to how well do you understand it. And that single thing will shift every relationship personally and professionally you have in your life. Mitch Wallace, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm super pumped about today. I think I we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And to be fair, like to me, this is a pretty personal topic that we're going to look at. I mm. think it's a topic that's personal to everyone, clearly, um, when we think about your your core thread in this theme throughout your life, which is addressing and, and advocating for mental health. Yeah. But the other reason I brought you here was because, um, you know, for anyone who knows that no one, I don't want to steal all your thunder, mate, but, you know, a great career as a, um, uh, you know, the, the the youngest intern with Microsoft built into uh, this social entrepreneur, the story around your investments, your time and your, your current um, charity, which I think we can talk about whether it should be a charity or not, but mm. we'll talk about that in terms of heart of my sleeve and all of these amazing things you've done as a as an entrepreneur, I think mm. are really cool. So it's a beautiful platform that will inter intersect with our audience who are primarily business owners, leaders, people making a bit of a dent in the universe, mate. So mm. maybe so I can sort of get you to help everyone join the dots. Maybe you can tell us a bit of a story about how this thread of mental health is featured amongst this career in business. Yeah, sure. So I'll give the short version because yeah. I won't bore your listeners with the long one, but I uh, I've, I pretended my whole life and eventually that got too painful and I broke. That's essentially the that in a nutshell. I am very privileged and fortunate, raised in Sydney, Australia and, you know, by conditions that weren't in my control being my race and my gender and my uh, financial status, my family. I, I even in my teenage years realised I have it easier than most people. And, you know, developmentally everything was ticking along very normally. Um, after high school, did a commerce degree at Sydney Uni, then, yeah, youngest intern at Microsoft, grad program marketing manager, then by 25, a global product manager in Seattle. And I'm 33 now. 
And so, you know, the perfect Instagram moment is happening on the exterior, but actually what's happening on the inside is I was never okay. And I remember the first day that I knew that I was different at seven years old when my mom saw me repetitively touching the dashboard of her car, blinking in a certain pattern, saying the word God out loud on repeat. And that's when she looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, but I always feel upset. I think that I'm a bad person. And we went to the doctor and they looked at me and said, you have very acute OCD and anxiety. And I remember walking out the front, looking up at mum, who is still my best friend, and asked her, why is my brain broken? And she started to cry. That was the first moment of putting on the brave face and pretending. I would then go 20 years overachieving whilst masking complete and utter inner turmoil. And things just got worse and worse. Mm. Like I just got better at hiding it. The OCD ramped, the panic disorder ramped, the depression ramped, and eventually suicidal ideation kicked in very strong. Um, But because I was excelling, I thought, well, I'll just ride this until the wheels fall off. And it was over in the States when I moved there in my mid-20s where they did. Mm. And that was a function of being really busy at work, living away from home, but... Also, I'm a big believer that you can only pretend for so long before it catches up with you. Mm. And I just couldn't cope anymore. And so in ironically, in a desperate lunch for safety, because I was so scared to go and talk to a professional, my logic was I'll just become one. So I got accepted to a master's degree in clinical psychology at Columbia University, took annual leave from Microsoft, started my degree there. And I remember in the first hour of the first day having this clear realisation that this is what I'm put on the earth to do. Uh, But I didn't know at the time how that was going to manifest because I was still such a mess. And shortly after that is when I would break down completely and hit beyond rock bottom and was ready to end it all. And a a YouTube video actually saved my life. Um, Believe it or not, that's a a long tangent that I won't go on now, but... Mm basically a guy in his bedroom sharing his story. And um, as I watched, it was the first time ever that I felt understood. And it's not as if decades worth of pathology evaporated overnight and I just instantly was cured. But what did shift was that most of suffering in life isn't actually the problem. It's the story that you tell yourself around it Mm -hmm. and the pretending about it. So, you know, anxiety, depression, OCD, they're all hard, but they're manageable. What's not manageable is pretending that you're fine through that and or telling yourself stories like I'm crazy, I'm unlovable, you know, life is doomed for me and Mm. I'm full of shame and toxicity and that buries you. Mm. And by seeing one person understand what I'd been through, it's like for the first time ever I gave myself permission to let go of those stories Mm. and finally move toward the thing that I'd been avoiding. Like I would do anything to avoid how I would feel to talk about it, to to experience it. And it's like Harris said, no, it's you can do this and you can confront this and you can live with this. And so not only was I understood, I also believed now for the first time that this doesn't define me in a negative way. This is actually my superpower if I learn to dance with it. And so after that, I quit my job at Microsoft, moved back to Australia, moved in with my parents, bright, shiny career down the toilet, all my self-worth from that regard. I couldn't even hide behind that. And the messy work started, the messy journey. People will come and tell you about mental health saying, I oh, meditate and drink more water and do a juice cleanse in Bali. And I'm like, fuck that, man. That's, 
that's not it. Like you can do all those things. What what healing is, what growth is, is when you're being real with what you're actually trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Like if all these things are just distracting you from actually confronting the core pain and wound and insecurity and you're just pruning the hedges on top, it's just surviving. Yeah. And um, so the messy work for me looked like finding a therapist after eight different tries and actually finally talking about it. It meant writing a 30,000-word letter and making sense of my life and stuff that happened in childhood, reading that out loud to my parents um, to try and feel known and seen by them fully, making lifestyle changes, creating boundaries with friends, accepting that I might need a low-dose antidepressant, knowing that I'm not the guy that can go out and get wasted three nights in a row and be fine and Mm. not let shame be attached to that anymore. Um, and as I was crawling out of this hole, I was like, well, I have one life's goal now, which is to be Harris, this random dude that I've never met or spoken to before for someone else. So I went down to my local beach, drew a heart on my arm and said, here it is. If this dissolves your shame for one person, my, uh, my dream is fulfilled. And I pressed upload, went to bed that night and woke up the next morning and Things have never been the same since. Mm. Went viral around the world. People started tattooing hearts in their arms, sharing their story. And now we turn six on May 30th. And it's not just a social movement. It's pivoted a bunch of times, which I'm sure we'll get into, to become a service provider. And has led me down a path of social entrepreneurship with the other businesses that I founded alongside that. And my mission as a human being is to change the way the world feels. Well, mate, you've certainly joined the dots there to get us to where you are today and, and I appreciate it. I'm, I'm humbled to hear that story face to face. I think you know, there are other people that have heard that on your podcast and other things that you've shared. But for me, I think part of what it would be great to sort of explore today is just some of the gaps and the, the bits that join those dots even further, um, particularly for those listening who can resonate with that story, right? Most mm. of us can in different ways. I, in my experience, I think we all have different versions of it. Um but mate, can I take a step back before we talk about some of the business yeah. and the, the experiences and the plays that you're all involved in now? There's something that was really curious you shared before about being understood. Mm. And, you know, you, you talked about your progression through Microsoft and this sort of success and then hiding who you really were. How did that serve you in hindsight? The hiding? Mm. I think for... First of all, the fact that you asked that question means that you're a smart dude and you understand psychology because every protection mechanism that hurts us is there for a reason mm. and it's, it's paying off something else. So what it was protecting me was career development, essentially. Mm. My mindset was uh, dealing with my mental illness that I was in denial that I even had. Mm. And achieving my career goals are mutually exclusive. And I don't know where that came from. No one ever said that. In fact, I don't even think that would have been true. Mm. But that's what I believed. Interesting. So at the time that you've seen it as mutually exclusive and now your realisation is they go hand in glove, right? Yeah, I I don't think anyone should or can make that choice to perform and fulfill your passion and provide for your family financially and to live a peaceful, stable, emotional life. Mm. Uh, And with the right company culture and with the right processes and strategies in place, no one needs to worry about that trade-off. 
I want to look, look at what you do in that company culture space because it's you know it's a responsibility we all have as business owners mm. regardless of whether you're a two-person band with one staff member or have thousands in my in my opinion right that's just my opinion but um you know <laughs> the first sort of grounding rule in my opinion is to define what you're working with mm. right and, and we talk about mental health a lot mm. you know society's become much more comfortable talking about mental health in the last five years than it ever has in my opinion but often what we don't talk about is how knowing whether we are healthy mentally. And if we were to define that before we think about that relationship between being mentally healthy and performing and whatever that means in our, our world, how do you see it? What's, what's, what's it mean to be healthy mentally? Well, I think people conflate mental health with the word mental illness, first of all, because mm. mental health is the desired state. Yes. Something that we all want, something that we all have, confusing them would be like walking up to someone and saying, oh, don't talk to that person who has a broken leg. They have physical health. Mm, exactly. It's an oxymoron, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, mental illness, first of all, isn't you're crazy or you're abnormal. I like to define it as the excess occurrence of naturally occurring emotions that hurts you. Mm -hmm. We all have anxiety. We all feel depressed from time to time. If I had enough time, I could prove you to you that you've, hallucinated I mean delusional to some extent uh, at some point I'm in your life you very confident of that <laughs> not just you man but, <laughs> but yes, everyone but everyone has so yes. so therefore it's not the mere presence of something that makes you um, unwell it is when the intensity and duration of those things impact your ability to experience any type of positive emotion and or impede your ability to to perform at work and in relationships so is the thing that's designed to help you and protect you and make you human being emotional, mm -hmm. um, now hindering your existence. That's mental ill health to me. Mental health is by no means an omnipotent state of happiness because we know through the science that the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's mania, mm -hmm. which is just as dangerous. Just as dangerous, yeah. So biologically, if you imagined us as a car, we're not designed to be at that altitude of ecstasy all day. We're designed to be a species that feels the full gamut of emotions and what I think is my two markers for mental health. One is um, how well, well defined by probably speed and quality, can I get from negative to neutral? Mm -hmm. Some people would call that resilience. I call that um, uh, pain tolerance or um, uh, coping management or mm. whatever you want to say. Mm. But mm. Um, can I deal well with the inevitable shit that life throws me? Yeah. That's marker number one for sure. Yeah. Marker number two is, do I have the capacity to experience what I call meaningful positive emotions that go from neutral to above? Yes. Meaningful positive emotions aren't necessarily just that hedonistic pleasure. In fact, the pursuit, and so many researchers will talk about this, it's the pursuit of things like connection and love and purpose and fulfillment that all involve actively feeling negative. Mm making a dent in the world like your audience is trying to do and, and is doing, it's fucking hard. It's hard work, yeah. But we do that in pursuit of a deeper positive. Mm -hmm. Falling in love and marriage and, and all that is bloody hard because there's vulnerability involved with that. And, but we do it because it's worth it due to the, the experience of a deeper positive. So it's those two things together for me that is what a mentally healthy person looks like. Mm -hmm. But just to round that point off, you know, we've got to eradicate this 
this thing of like mental illness only happens to a few people because statistically um, I've heard Pat McGorry quote that 87% of people will cross the diagnostic threshold into mental illness whether they're diagnosed or not mm-hmm. at some point in their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all doing our best and the more we eradicate the them versus us, uh, I think we'll be able to, to build a much healthier society. I couldn't agree more with that last point. And, and look, I'm no st- statistician in this space. I'm certainly just a guy that works in business and tries to understand people, right? And, mm. you know, my, my observation is we all, we all have stuff going on, mm. right? We're all playing within that, that spectrum and moving up and down based on different dents and different experiences. And occasionally some of those punches hurt a little bit more than others, right? Um, and that ability to bounce back or the ability to get back to that neutral zone you talked about, it, it can be hard based on all these factors. Now, you know, for me, I, I wonder, you know, your business, and I'd love to hear about Heart of My Sleeve, there's, there's a lot in that that works with leadership groups and, and cultures more broadly around this idea that, you know, if we can be more effective in this space, we can help people solve those two problems mm. and therefore arguably become more productive and work better as an organisation. Yeah. That's the way I understand the proposition. Um, can you put some more colour in that? Absolutely. Yeah. So first of all, when people say like, what do you do? It's a hard question to answer when I'm at the pub and I'm just grabbing a beer. Yeah. yeah um, but the simplest answer is mental health expert and social entrepreneur. So mental health expert is what I do, speaking, consulting, authoring, podcasting, blah, blah, blah. And then social entrepreneur is the portfolio of organisations that I use yeah. to scale change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've never gone down the private clinician route because I'm using the spade and hammer that I have at my disposal, which is I know business. Yes. So I'm trying to uh, usher therapeutic interventions through those mechanisms. My biggest one and my first child being hard on my sleeve, I'm super proud of and um, and what the team is doing, which originally was just a social movement. It was a belief that as a society, if we are more real and vulnerable and authentic in the way that we communicate, mm. the world will change. Um, and that's based on the scientific uh, evidence that human relationships are the single greatest protective factor and treatment factor mm. to emotional well-being issues, mm. period. And mm. on my podcast, I've interviewed Harvard psychologists that prove that point. Uh, as we've evolved and grown, as luck would have it, in a chance meeting that when I was doing my round the grounds trying to convince HR managers to listen to me and at the time no one would, saying (laughs) that if all you do is create a more human environment of authentic communication, you can drop almost every other initiative you do because people would forego every perk and benefit just to feel understood and cared about at work. I was kind of getting a lot of no's. Mm. And then one lady in particular who used to be the head of wellbeing at KPMG, we had this 15-minute meeting booked. I don't even know how I got it. She arrived like 10 minutes late and I basically went, all right, I got five minutes. Here's what I believe. She hung around for an hour and a half and walked out of that meeting and said, we're all in. And that was where everything changed for me. Heart on my sleeve moved from social movement to a thing Mm -hmm. with structure and a business plan now. And she's like, I want you to go and train our whole national leadership team on what you think it means to have real conversations. So I did that and then that worked. And over the last six years, it's all grown from there. Thousands of, well... 200,000 people we've touched via virtual programs, almost 10,000 through face-to-face programs and KPMG, Microsoft globally now run our training program, the company that I thought would never look at me again. And the reason why I think it resonates is because 
talking and connecting are different. Mm-hmm. And that that is kind of like if you understand that inside as a business, not only will your people and culture change, your sales teams will change, they will be better parents, they will be better spouses, et cetera, that we're investing so much time and energy in talking-based initiatives. Now, I think that what I call the ticking the box approach to mental well-being at work, um, everyone has to start there. So I'm not trying to poo-poo on it, i.e. having an EAP provider, having mental health first aiders, having a drop-in keynote speaker once a year, um, messaging that mental health is important through the comms channels. That's great, but it's not really creating a culture of psychological safety. Uh, And the reason is, is because A, a lot of that is external Mm -hmm. to the company and B, a lot of it is raising awareness of what mental health is, not necessarily how to behave differently Mm -hmm. as a result. So a lot of the current solutions are saying, let's just raise awareness of what is anxiety, what is depression, but then no one knows what to do about that. and or when we do have conversations about how to have conversations, we teach people how to talk, not connect. Mm-hmm. Because the single greatest insight to a therapeutic conversation is in order to be helpful, you need to redefine your definition of success from how well do you fix it to how well do you understand it. And that single thing will shift every relationship personally and professionally you have in your life. I love that story, first of all. Um, I reflect on my, when you were telling that story the first time I ever went up client project but I I won't go down that path it's, it's amazing to, to see where you've taken it but more importantly let's let's like I I, I see this piece around connection and I don't want to you know downplay are you okay day as an example right but to me I think one of the missing pieces that helps people accelerate in their confidence and their ability to take on challenges and their ability to make judgment which is ultimately what business is about mm. right whether you're in a big large organization or you're a, you're a one-man band you're about that those things are just you know, embedded in your needs to be successful. 100%. And in order to create that that confidence, um, I think there's this degree of certainty you need to build underneath that, which is fundamentally is am I understood and am I comfortable that what I am doing is is supported, right? And you talked about connection and I, I sort of used are you okay today? Not, not to say that's a bad idea, but I often wonder when we ask the question, are you okay, and you think about these this idea of connection, I'm not sure that people really understand how to do that yeah, well. Yeah, what next? You know, I've often had conversations with my wife and, and being in the space we're both in where we're in, you know, boutique, startup, investing, all of that sort of stuff, often you feel a little bit unique and you, you say, do people even know what I do? You talked about going to the pub and say, can I explain my business to it to a guy at the pub? And I go, oh, okay. One of my cousins tells me often, you just sell air, mate. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's the easiest way to describe it. So mm. this idea of connection, right, and being understood and, and the value of that, can you unpack that a little bit more? What, yeah, for what, sure. How does that look? What's that mean? Um, connection is the environment in which people get better. So I'll unpack that a bit. In a meta-analysis by the APA, American Psychological Association, they they looked at a whole bunch of studies as to why does therapy work. Mm. So in a clinical intervention, when you're not okay and you go and talk to someone about it and you and you feel better, you get better, how does that happen? And essentially what they showed is that for the vast majority of cases, asterisk to some um, serious complex mental illnesses that require specific interventions, but for the vast majority of cases, particularly anxiety and depression, what led to the therapeutic patient outcome in therapy 
was the nature of the relationship formed between clinician and client more than the type of intervention used. So whether they did CBT or DBT or whatever else. So essentially what unearthed is this insight that it is literally feeling cared about that gets you better, faster and more effectively than actually changing the problem itself. Interesting. Um, and then that brings up this whole existential question as to, well, how can that be true? And we don't have time, but essentially humans suffer more in story than problem, which mm-hmm. kind of relates back to my original point. Two people go through the same four traffic lights. One person says, that'd be right. Three red lights in a row. I'm always late. My whole day's ruined. Guy on the right goes, how good's this? My first green light out of the last three. The story you tell yourself is more of a predictor of the quality of life that you have than the situational input stimulus that occurs. Okay. So therefore, human connection and relationships gives you the best frame to tell stories through mm-hmm. because you are cared about and your your core emotional need of safety is, is um, met. So uh, we keep giving organizations tools to raise the conversation of awareness, but not the tools that creates meaningful therapeutic outcomes in a layperson sense, which is just listen, <laughs> just listen. Like we use this thing called the golden ratio of support. And we say, if all you do is stop spending 80% of the time problem solving and 20% of the time listening and invert that ratio to 80% listening, 20% problem solving, you will unlock the therapeutic component of connecting, not fixing and talking. It's interesting you say that because even the process of problem solving, often when I'm working with people on strategy, the reason they solve the problems poorly is because they haven't listened to understand the problem in the first place, right? So, But before that is a connection and just allowing someone to sit in that problem. I hear that a lot, which is that I'm a born problem solver, particularly high-performing entrepreneurs, because we're compensated, rewarded, validated, and our identity becomes part of the fact that we are good at making shit go away. Yes. You don't need to give that up. All I'm saying is the more emotional something is, it's just not going to work. So if you look at it from a problem-solving perspective, it's not going to solve the problem. So if you're working on a complex business thing or like org structure or someone asks you where's the toilet, you don't need to be like, tell me how you feel about toilets. <laughs> what I'm saying is if it's emotionally charged, it's not solved from here. It's solved from here. So if you want to be a good problem solver, learn how to have EQ, yes. not IQ. Yes. And it's part of that process of showing that heart, right? bringing that, that person to a place where it is helpful for them, whatever that looks like. 100%. It's part of that um, but fundamentally taking them back to that neutral zone. Is that really what it's giving them enough space to move there themselves? It's giving them enough space to be able to find a way to come home. Uh, and, and that might seem a bit lofty when you're like, dude, I'm talking about someone stressed in the corridor and we're just having a chat. Like, let's chill on the space to come home. (laughs) But there are listeners right now who that statement will very much resonate with because they've been on to hell's dungeon like I have. And, you know, people ask me, well, your mom didn't have a psych degree. She had you at 22 and she raised the kid with complex mental illness who should have been dead by now. Mm. What did she do right? And I said, it wasn't what she did. It's the way that she looked at me. Yeah. When she stared at me, I knew that she wasn't scared of me. Mm. And it was through that that I learned how to 
drop the shame, drop the stories and come home and eventually let let things go. And I think as people leaders, we don't understand that that vertical relationship between leader and staff member mirrors parent to child. Yeah. So we're projecting all over the shop. So if we don't take the time to validate and listen, we're going to be triggering a whole bunch of old stories in our staff member. And I've had countless people put their hands up during workshops and say, this content's great, but I don't have a spare three hours just to yarn to someone about the way they're feeling. And I said, great, me either. I'm pretty busy. Yeah. I'm talking about three seconds. Yeah. The difference between saying, wow, that sounds hard and, well, have you thought about doing this or you should go do that, that window of three seconds is where relationships change. I can see that. I can see that. It's interesting because, you know, even, even in the past life when I was an employee, right, I was uh, running around as a manager, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have all these beliefs or frustrations in my head and you put your, your smiley face on and, you know, in my world, it was a lot of sales, right? And often it would be a conversation where maybe someone sees your perspective or they even resonate because they're going through it themselves as well. And just to know that that's happening takes, it just seems to take a little bit of gas out of the system. Yeah. So the pressure drops. Uh, and I don't know, again, why that happens, you know, neurologically, but I do know that you know, I've seen this happen in meetings, in discussions, in really robust conversations I, I've had in, in, in my business where as soon as that pressure drops, the sense-making just improves dramatically. And I, I, as you say, whether that takes three minutes, whether that takes three hours, I wonder is it worth the three hours though? Yeah. If in the end the result's better, right? And that's, and that's one of the issues I wanted to talk to you about is with these organisations you work with, and I work with some of them as well, you know, the biggest issue we have is this challenge of prioritization. Mm. You know, um, we want, we're in the pursuit of a strategy, we're in the pursuit of achieving amazing things as a collective, and then we get caught up in the task, we get caught up in the urge, and we get caught up in the emotional system that, it, that, that seems to be the byproduct of where we're at. Um, how have you seen clients or situations play out where this moves from awareness to? a priority to a systematic shift? Mm. Well, there's three reasons. We're going to go right up to the top of why even care about mental health at work. Mm. Why even care about people at work taking mental health out? Exactly. And it comes back to three pillars. And usually someone will buy in on one or all of the three. The first is ethically. It's the right thing to care for people. We spend lots of time with each other. They, they give us their all most of the time. Um, and as fellow humans, we want to create the conditions in which people can live high-quality lives. The second is economically. So there's, you know, the studies have shown there's a $2.30 return on investment for every dollar invested toward a mentally healthy workplace, blah, blah, blah. Um, but more importantly, you just know that when teams are well-connected, they are super engaged, super efficient, comms are transparent, everything is streamlined. And there's this misconception that the aerodynamics of high performance is stunted through care. In fact, an object will move faster in space when the, when the edges are rounded, when it's, when it's actually softer at the edge. Hard edges causes friction. Yeah. So if you look at then and apply that to a business sense, slowing down and rounding the edges to be a little bit more soft enables that bullet to go faster mm -hmm. and for longer. 
So, and then the third reason outside of ethically, economically, um, is legally. Mm-hmm. This shit ain't a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And we're acting like it is. And one day a huge royal inquiry is going to come along and a lot of people are going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Like a lot. We are causing and aggravating psychological injury in the workplace every day. And we are not, um, they're in a court of law, it would be very hard to disprove that it would be reasonably practicable to mitigate those risks through mm-hmm. job design, job demand, job control, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm not saying that the workplace needs to make someone all better. What I am saying is the workplace's number one responsibility is to not make him worse. Yeah. That's a confronting reality, right? I, I think to talk about that with an organization, you know, is that is that where the com- where does the conversation usually start when you now talk about because you've got a proven track record. You've yep. got a you've got a business that's made a dent and has seen mm. measurable results, right? What's where does the conversation really The conversation starts start? like if you look at the, unfortunately, taking a business lens on something like mental health feels bad, but that's how we have impact and change. Yeah. Um, but to take a business lens, if you look at customer awareness mapping, so you got like unaware, problem aware, solution aware, uh, product aware, fully aware. We used to come in at a, at a level where we would meet with HR director or a senior leader and say, mental health is super important. And then the conversations would fizzle out and I'm like, oh, they already know that. Yeah. We need to stop trying to convince them of investing in well-being, particularly post the pandemic. And we need to come at how are you going to go from good to great? How are you going to move beyond just value token signaling, ticking the box yeah. and shift culture into psychological safety? And how you do that is by, is by shifting the communications um, behaviors of two key cohorts leaders and passionate peers Mm -hmm. why leaders the best way to impact an employee's mental health is to give them a good manager a manager has been proven to be more impactful than a therapist and on par with a romantic partner Mm -hmm. Uh, passionate peer peers are more likely to reach out to another peer more than any other resource in the workplace Um, but yet the traditional emotional cpr approach to systemizing peer support does not work because in 99 percent of the use case because yep. it's not a crisis most yeah. of the time. So what we're saying is, well, how do we give you a systemized five-step proven emotional intelligence framework that can take these cohorts from scared of mental health, making people feel worse, creating distance in relationships, completely avoiding it altogether, to up to 94% more helpful in less than a day, and then bolt on a lifetime support package and an accreditation package that that offer, in the words of Alex Hormozy, feels stupid to say no to. Yeah. Because I have scoured everything. And if it was out there already, I wouldn't have built it. Yeah, yeah. But these per- these two programs, Real Leaders and Real Mates, perfectly meet, this ne- meet the need for a shifted communications culture in regards to human uh, business. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love that. And it's... it's um I've worked with plenty of large organisations and I think when we talk about culture, we look at the relationship that that leadership group has with culture and often um, there's a, a perception that they don't want to admit it's broken, first of all, or that something is has an opportunity to go from good to great or great to greater. And, you know, starting the conversation that usually things aren't terrible anyway, but we've got all these people with this latent potential is quite a, an amazing way to to bring them on that journey. Too often, though, it's it's seen as a threat. Mm. You know, this this idea is another thing to put into the into the mix. But 
what I love is that you're obviously making some cut through and I, you made an interesting comment before. You said, you know, talking about mental health and business feels a bit yuck. Mm. Why is that? I think I'm, I'm currently in a journey of sh- shaping my relationship to money and understanding more and more personally as I journey through different phases of my life, staring down the barrel of wanting to have a family, um, going in a family where my mum was very poor when I was born to her and my stepdad creating a life of affluence, like complete affluence, going from Microsoft to mental health, being told that anyone who does good for the world shouldn't earn a dollar and then me in the middle trying to piece all this together, listening and watching and asking providers, uh, sorry, asking corporate clients, who out of your um, supplier list is not for profit? And they're like, just you. So I'm like, okay, you you require money to change the world, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to let that in a little bit because I had a conversation with a dear friend and a mentor, a very, very, very well-respected business person last night. And I said, I have to make integrity first decisions, not practical and financial first decisions because money would never mean enough for me to compromise my character. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the integrity is there... The, What's also true is it's stupid of me not to leverage finances mm. to create more good in the world. And that's kind of the the journey that I'm in the middle of. And I was telling you before we met, tune in in three years and listen back to this convo. And I'd be interested to see where I've landed because I am very much swinging over to social entrepreneurship using capital, true capital, not donations capital, mm. true capital to create scalable change because – you know, as a not-for-profit at the moment, which might not be true in the long term, particularly with discussions at the moment, donations are like an oligopoly industry like airlines. You've got four or five players that get 90% of the funding and it's very resource-intensive to try and access. 90% of our P&L is fee-for-service. Yeah. We're operating as a for-profit but not accessing the capital potential. Behaving like a commercial business. Yeah. 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 So, and I, you know, if you were to talk to anyone in my team, we run this like a well-oiled team, like every part of what we do. When people say, what business do you have? I said, heart on my sleeve. Like only if people eventually ask, is it a charity? I'd be like, yeah, it's not for profit, but that's a financial structure. It's not who we are. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the guilt and spiritual practical relationship to money is something that I'm really excited to see emerge. And I think the moment that I let that energetic barrier go, the abundance will start to flow. Yeah. I don't know if this uh this isn't a helpful observation or not, but my instinct, and I'd love your opinion, is your integrity seems like it's something you wouldn't let go of anyway. No. So maybe the attention just needs to go to the other side to help the integrity accelerate. I think my worst fear is that anyone would question why I'm doing this. Mm. And I know that I wouldn't and the people who love me wouldn't because they've seen me in a hole where it's like no amount of money is worth where I was. Mm. But I, I can't let go of that yet. Oh, I will. Yeah. I was going to say, why does it matter? Well, because it's funny. Every single person has asked me that question who I've told them about this relationship to finances and thinking about restructuring the org. They're like, who is this person in your head? Is it, is it like a parental figure? Is it an investor? Is it a donor? Like, who is it? Because everyone is saying, do what's best for your sustainability mm. First and foremost, because if, if you go down, the whole thing goes down. Mm. And then do what's best for scale and impact. Mm. 
And in therapy and in meditation right now, I'm trying to figure out who the, who the voice at the other end of that comment is. Mm. I get it. I get it. We all have these challenges. But, mate, I hope you find it because th the reality is I think for anything of this nature, you know, we do need something to make uh, the wheels spin faster or more effectively, one of the two, mm. and, um, and that never goes away. And whether that's a charity ecosystem or not, I, I really wish you a lot of luck, mate. Thanks, mate. Um, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind changing gears because one of the other parts of value which I love is you just know your topic so well. Like you are an absolute expert. I could see it like I only got to know you a little bit the other, the other day and we spoke for half an hour or so on just a range of topics. I was like, oh, this, this is awesome. And, and to me, I, I just, you know, I, I want to sort of look at some of the stories that I see in, in the work we do and these you know, business leaders and owners that we speak to. And one of the things I'd love your opinion on is I, I see this challenge in Australia around tall poppy syndrome. And at the same time, I see that the average person I work with that gets smashed a little bit with tall poppy feedback mm. are often navigating imposter syndrome or uh, <laughs> fear or anxiety around taking major risks in their business and they're just doing their best, right? But, but how, do you, how do you see that in your own experiences? What have you noticed around that relationship between the experience an individual's having in, in these key roles. I've noticed that a lot. And, and just the way the, the world's working for around them. I feel sorry for that sandwich, you know. Mm -hmm. You have tall poppy syndrome behaviour happening at you with imposter syndrome. It's like phew, yeah. double whammy. Where do, where do you win? Yeah. 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 And we are guilty as Australians for that. You know, we're, the she'll be right culture. I, you know, I always say from a psychological standpoint, there's a reason why we don't finish our words. Servo, bottle-o, like... <laughs> And that is because saying a full word is seen as trying too hard. Totally. Yeah. That's fucked. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> imagine if, if, that, if that is the level that we're operating on, that we shorten a word to not try too hard. Imagine people who actually try really hard yeah. every day as a personality trait. You're not set up for success and inclusion unless you find a tribe of people around you where entrepreneurship and conscientiousness and like – especially males, we see that as like counterintuitive to masculinity. It's like, mm -hmm. nah, it took me, well, almost 30 years to now find my tribe that I'm in now where commonplace is sitting around having dinner and a, and a beer and talking about how can we support you better, bro? Like what can I do to make your week better next week? And how are you feeling at the moment? How's your mum? And what are you fearful of? Yeah. And I love you, man. Yeah, yeah. That's my crew. And, and I think until I found that crew, I thought there's something really wrong with me because I don't fit in here. I want to celebrate other people. I want to gas them up. I want to get real at the pub. Mm. Um, and then, you know, my time in America, I mean, they might slightly overcook the, the celebration, but I prefer that way than the other, which yeah. is they love that shit. And I love being part of that. Like, you know, the average person at Microsoft would have like two side hustles, hike of a weekend, like bike ride, know how to put together a remote control car. And that was normal. And yeah. I wish that we adopted more of that mindset. It's sad to, like, as you said, it's a challenging sandwich, right? And, and sometimes I wonder what's the right thing to solve for? Is it about thinking about how to support people to consider being more conscious about celebrating others and, and helping them evolve to to be a little bit less, you know, judgmental? Or is it actually just for, for those tries, those givers, those people that are ripping in, is it just about 
finding that that slot of, as you say, the right people around you? What's the? It's probably both. I think the the, the easiest win, low hanging fruit for just sanity yeah. is to find people around you that get you a and celebrate you b because they're very different things. Um, and then I think as a society, you know, you, you can't change anyone unless they want to. And I think that's true for a culture as well. Yeah. If everything was working hunky dory in Oz, then I'd be like, well, if people want to be celebrated, then that's their call. But our rate of mental illness and suicide is disastrous. Mm. So something's not working. Yeah. And by the way, I'm, even though I'm the heart on my sleeve guy, I'm an enormous advocate for resilience mm. and getting shit done. Mm. Mm. I'm an enormous advocate for not being a victim. Well, you role model it. Well, thank you. But like, don't like I, people mishear me when they're like, oh, so you just talk around and woe is me all day and, and um, splurt out your vulnerability on anyone without consideration for how it impacts. I'm like, no, never said that. Definitely don't advocate for that. No. There is a huge time for rolling up the sleeves and confronting your demons. Yeah. That to me is more courageous. Doing the work and feeling and having hard conversations is 10 times more courageous than someone who never talks about it and appears to suck it up, but yet drinks themselves into oblivion and fucks up their whole family. Yeah. That gambles away their family's like brave man, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty weak to me. Totally. It's and it's uh often those people that throw on the stones at it, right? But it's you know, when you when you think about personal responsibility, like that's what you're talking about here. It, it's it's this relationship of being on one hand, be understood, f- have find that connection, be part of something where you feel you belong. On the other hand, you, you have a responsibility to make that happen. Um, where's the where does that like how does that work in in practicality when you're someone that, that might be listening to this that's going okay I'm. I'm not feeling understood. I'm feeling a little bit isolated. I'm not, I might be externally doing a pretty good or I'm doing okay or I'm not doing well, whatever the external level is. And then there's this internal level. Mm. Um, when you think about that relationship of personal responsibility, you know, to me, a, a great example, like I, I hear this word gaslighter all the bloody time, right? Just gets, in my opinion, overused. The last five years, I've never heard the word used more. <laughs> I had to Google it about seven years ago when I first heard it. But yeah. gaslighting gets used all the time. I'm like, okay, is this really gaslighting? Yeah. Or is this person actually um, just misinterpreting, struggling to deal with a complex human being or a complex set of communication? Yeah. So that's just one example. But, what? yeah, what are your thoughts on that personal responsibility piece? Huge. Yeah. Huge. Uh, like to put a workplace lens on it, I think we've – almost slightly over index on company accountability for personal well-being. Mm. Like I think particularly the younger generation is coming in being like, make me better. Mm. Um, so I know that might seem counterintuitive. What, what, I guess my point is currently we're way under indexed on company accountability on average mm. that we need to do way more. Yep. But the projected goal of where we're supposed to be is unrealistic. So I think what needs to happen is the projected goal needs to become a little bit more healthy around what a company should and shouldn't do, mm-hmm. which essentially is just communications culture that's safe and, and caring um, with a framework that protects, supports and promotes well-being. Yeah. Um, not 
being someone's everything and overextending company resources beyond what's reasonably practical and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And then we need to bring the reality into a realistic goal framework. Yeah. Um, part of this middle ground though, this realistic goal is employees taking care of themselves mm. and, and having conversations around expectations and wants and needs and, and stuff like that. And I know that that's for a lot of people, like I'm imagining a, professional services graduate or a law graduate being like, oh yeah, so you just want me to change like 40 years of traditional working practices with a convo, do you? And I'm like, well, maybe not you yourself um, thinking that you can change that, but you'd be surprised at the receptivity of that message, even though it might feel slow to them, it is happening. Mm -hmm. And if no one moves, nothing changes. Mm -hmm. So do you want to be part of the solution? And at what, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. It can feel scary when you're a graduate, I'd imagine. Fuck yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting. I I think one of the things that I learned as a, a youngster in, in workload and, and in business was those boundaries become that if you look at the the structures in your, your environment that almost for some people feel threatening are actually the things that make you better, mm. right? Um, I, I've felt no more strength than knowing where my, my lanes are and knowing that I can be effective or creative or play within that mm. and one part of communication i think that is really poor is clarity for a lot of people yeah that provides you the ability to go here close the gap and what clarity do you need on closing that gap but i trust you yep right um and i'm prepared to listen but i'm not prepared to let go of your responsibility right and i think that's where there's this sort of missing that part last part and the first part so the clarity Mm. Like we want people to close the gap. We want you to do amazing work. Mm. But we don't necessarily want to have that conversation about this is still your responsibility. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to see that be okay more in a public conversation. I think there's a, you know, you're looking at job clarity. There's there's levers that can also offset. If, if, if a need for job clarity goes up, uh, then you can tweak job demand, job design. Like for example, if, if the if their clarity becomes more ambiguous. Yes. And therefore they're, you know, where we've just pivoted to this new product. We're not sure what that's going to look like day to day. I kind of just need everyone to grab an oar and steer the boat at the moment. We'll, f we'll, f we'll make this more clear. Mm -hmm. Then we can offset that ambiguity there with changes to job demand or changes to job control. I, I like when and where and how you do the work. Yes. And so these levers can kind of mix as different pockets of risk pop up. Yes, yes. And it's, it's your ability as a leader to, to know how to play around with those levers. Right. right. Which is, again, a skill that we're all underdeveloped in, in my opinion. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, the, the COVID pandemic forced that on everyone's plate, right? I, you know, I'm, if you've listened to any of my podcasts before, sorry if I repeat any of this to your listeners that have been like, dude, you sometimes use the same story because I hate it when people do that, but I'm going to use it right now. <laughs> the, in business, we, everyone starts off being good at something and maybe a couple of things. So, you know, the entourage, which is a great business school, Jack Delosa does a great job. He defines or they define it as uh, six pillars, sales, marketing, operations, product, finance, and people, and leadership kind of straddles the top. So you can, in theory, break down any organ to that. Now, we start as a subject matter expert in something. Let's say for me, it was marketing. Yep. So I go up and up, up in marketing, I'm performing. And then one day someone taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey Mitch, you're a really good marketer. You should totally lead a group of marketers. 
And you're like, all right. And then in most cases, the number one most important mindset shift doesn't happen, which is it is now no longer my metric of success of how good I am at marketing. Mm -hmm. My metric of success now is how good I can make a team of marketers. That is the most crucial mindset switch to occur between individual contributor and people manager role. Totally. And, and for me, one of the reasons I do what I do is that my first experience as a manager was not that. Mm. It just wasn't obvious to me. And I think that's, um, that's a real uh, responsibility on leaders that provide managers that opportunity. So, hey, it's, it's not about you anymore. Actually, in most cases in life, it's not about you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the more, the more um, lucky you get in life, I, you know, moving up the chain or having a family or earning money, I think your role becomes more and more how do you bring the best out of people. Mm. And I would argue that the higher up you go in life, people, if that's not your main focus that you're only going to go one way. Like Brene Brown always says, if you don't know how to have a conversation about emotions, you're not going to lead in five years. Mm. Um, AI, even more of a reason that it's hard to code emotions. It, it's easy to code the practical. So um, we have to start. If you imagine, if, if relationships are the single greatest coping tool known to man from a mental health perspective, if people are the greatest skill of anyone that's moving up a chain, then you've got to get good at conversations because they're the currency in which you exchange yes. that, that economy in. So my whole philosophy with Heart on My Sleeve has been instead of having conversations that don't move the needle, have a real conversation, mm -hmm. which we define as one that's connected and has positive therapeutic outcomes. There's this interesting dynamic that's sort of been an undertone of the conversation today, which is, you know, for me to serve others, I need to serve myself. Mm -hmm. right? And... Um, this might feel like I'm changing gears a little bit, but I think it's still hugely related to what we were just talking about. And I, I, I come across this uh, quite a bit where this, this idea of other people being narcissistic, mm. right? We, we label them. Um, and in many respects then what that stops us doing is being able to look at ourselves through a sort of a self-care lens mm. in my experience, right? Um, do we have a problem with the way we label and, and particularly that word to me, narcissist. I think we're all narcissists in the end. I think we can be healthy. It's or, definitely an argument for or that. Or we can be unhealthy and, and create um, a whole lot of downside as a result of our, our identity and the way we, we, uh, we leverage ourselves in the world, right? So what do you see around you know, when people are caring for themselves, when they're looking at themselves in terms of these work, this work you do in corporate with the work mm. you do? with others from what you've seen in your own journey, what's the importance around getting that, that balance of how I care for myself and how I then bring that to the world? To oh, so many good nuggets there. Um, I mean, there's a few threads. One is the um, almost constant over misuse of diagnostic terms in common day vernacular, mm. you know, gaslighting, narcissism, all this stuff. And I think we need to chill on that a little bit, totally. um, particularly in the younger generation and you know, I have a sister who's 18 who I would give my life for. I absolutely love her to bits. And I listen, this isn't a criticism to her necessarily, and I'm sure she would be fine with me throwing under the bus because she knows the spirit that I mean this in. But 
you listen to the friendship community and you're like, I'm so triggered. Oh, that's so OCD of me. That's so like da 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 And I'm like, Whew, if you have gone into a psychotic hole because of acute OCD of actual triggers, <laughs> you would know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, also you don't have a degree. So let's not say you have narcissistic personality disorder or like blah, blah, blah. I think that you can say um, – I'm a big believer, and I'm guilty of this. By no, I'm not trying to stand on a soapbox and say that I don't do that sometimes too. But the more we can personalize things to say I feel, not you are, mm. it's a much better discourse and platform to jump from. Um, also, just while we're at it, I think the difference between narcissism and really healthy self-belief is like ignorance of, of improvement. Mm. Like narcissism is a complete blind spot of anything that could be better, mm. whereas self-belief is... I know that there are gaps and, I, and I'm fully invested in my development, but I'm also really confident and proud in what I've done so far. Yeah. Um, so it's like that humility piece that, that is the difference for me. Yeah. Um, and the final thing is, you know, self-care is not selfish. It is selfless. Um, I would actually, to take a very strong approach, argue the opposite, that a lack of self-care is one of the most selfish things you can do. Why? Because you're actually probably the last person that's going to cop the consequence of that. Everyone else will. Yeah. You're going to be a worse parent, a worse spouse, a worse people manager, a worse brother, sister, whatever else. If you are letting go of the core things that you know you need to be stable, yeah. Yeah. that fills your cup up to meet the ongoing barrage of output requirements, yeah. If you're foregoing that gym session because you're too busy, the B word's banned from my community, by the way. <laughs> We're all fucking busy. Oh, everyone's busy. We're just yeah. shifting time units and priori- priorities, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, uh, if you're missing that gym session, if you're not going out with those friends, if you're not watching that Desperate Housewives show, if you're not, you know, kicking the footy around when that's your thing that you want to do one hour a week, whatever gives you the highest ROI of joyful injection to remember who you are, then you're letting people down. Yeah. yeah. As you say that, right, for me, uh, about probably six years ago or so, I was in a bit of a hole. And the best piece of advice I was given was exactly that. Mm. You're being selfish when you don't look after yourself. And at first I was like, hang on, what do you mean? Mm. And, of course, the, the impact on others. For me, that was a, that was a trigger to, or a driver to, to change. Um, and I thought putting effort in. And being a provider and, and really, you know, focusing in one area, one little stream would would be the antidote and it's not, right? And it, it's beautiful to go through that experience. But that person that shared that with me, when we when I just had some time to sit on it, um, it was interesting because I had to start letting go of an old narrative around effort being the measure of value to others mm. versus the things that um, will holistically allow me as almost like an organism, a system to kind of work better. Um, And I started to treat myself like a a business. Mm. I look at myself as as multiple little departments. Yeah. And I know that sounds strange. No, it's awesome. But it's like if I can see myself as all these departments and you need to feed them all and support them all, how do you you, uh, then get a nice dose of the – the pleasures, the leisures, the things that drive you, the things that pick you up. How do you get a nice dose of 
the challenges, the things that, that fire you up? How do you get that time with the people you care about? Mm. Fam- I mean, my case is my family, right? How do I get that moment to be in their world and be present, right? That's just sort of my, that was just my way of thinking. It was funny you use the word presence. I always say in our workshops, why do we give the most juicy parts of our presence stake? Um, why don't we give the most juicy parts of our presence stake to the people that matter most? They get mm. the offcuts. Start, end of the day, in between things. It's like, you know what's never been on an obituary ever? The Q2 earnings in 2017. <laughs> Yeah, we somehow bluff ourselves. Though, the don't we? only yeah. thing that's on an obituary is, were you a good person Loving and how were you father. loved? Yeah, yeah. Were you a good person? How were you loved? Yep. But we don't work back from that. And, you know, to pick up on your word provider, this is a provocative statement, but hopefully by throughout the course of this interview with the right amount of context, people will understand what I'm trying to say here. But um, I'm going to say it and then I'm going to unpack it. Being a provider is not enough. Mm. I think as men, we go, but we're providing. And I'm like, well, yes, and I'm not diminishing the importance of that and the amount people sacrifice. By the way, white privilege comment. I'm sure rightfully so there are people right now being like, you have no fucking idea what I've had to sacrifice to get here mm. and, I, and to provide for the people that depend on me. Mm. I'm not discounting that. But what I'm saying is I reckon if you interviewed all the people in your life that matter most and you asked them, has my level of providership come at a cost and that sometimes I thought that I needed to provide things more than they were actually required and it forego and that that providership in certain areas, whether probably financially, that the people that love you most would actually trade that for more presence and care and joy and to see you smile more and to do all those things that, it's actually you're not providing for them. You're providing something internally for you when you're running that hard most of the time. Now, in 1% of the time, maybe if you're like super in a third world country and you got to get it done. But in any Western country, if you're over-indexed to the point of saying that I'm providing for someone else, you're lying to yourself. It's not for them. You, you did that 20% ago. Yeah. This part's for you now. Yeah. And I think... You know, I'm, I'm a victim of that. I've been there before. Me too. Right? You know, I think it's, it's, it's what I like about what you're sharing. You're like, you're navigating this yourself. Yeah, fuck yeah. Everything you've you've shared today, you've been through or you're dealing with. This is a monologue to me. You're managing, right? <laughs> like, so, I'm not trying to preach. Yeah, this is, this is no, reminding this is no myself. bullshit, right? And, and like, uh, and I'm the same. Like, oh, I go, far out. Like, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I just over-index on that. And I'm like, yeah, that, and that's my identity because that's me trying to be more important to myself Fucking and all no. that sort of stuff, right? And, same. And, and like we're all we're all the same. We all go through it. And I, But I think the interesting insight I'm taking from our conversation as well, and, and I wonder with how much you – well, what, what colour you can put around this is that if you're listening to this, it's just about finding your thing, right? It's like that, that return to neutral where you started – and then that 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 pursuit of, um, I guess you know stages of joy that keep you engaged and motivated and working on on something that's purposeful. You it's just your thing. Yeah. You know I I have this belief when I you know I'm working in a very commercial strategic sense with most people. But I said the first thing I said su- success is subjective. It's what you want it to be. You know. And if I detach myself from the emotional context of anyone's life and say well, you need to decide that. Mm. That's your thing. Your business is just an asset that feeds you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's okay to have it whatever it needs to be and you might get it wrong. Like I know for me I got it wrong 
at times. And it's nice to know that just because you've mismeasured who you're meant to be in the world that you can't change, like mm. you can change. Yeah. Um, and I think that what you've shown today to me um, through different parts of your story, and I, I think anyone who's keen on Mitch's stuff should get into your podcast and different, different mm. parts of your story. It needs attention and love. Well, there's just, no, it's not the attention and love. It's, <laughs> I think it's more that you, you are a, a, a beautiful role model of sharing you know, what it feels like to go through life, right? You're just a vocal version of what we all go through mm. and you're just talking about it. Um, and I think that's hard for people to do. So mm. I wonder for you, one one kind of question in sort of wrapping up is you've obviously been very courageous and wanting to get this out there and to talk about these topics. You know, what is it that m- makes it different for you to actually get it out there? Why are you doing this in the first place? Oh, part of it is definitely for me, mm-hmm. like selfish, over-indexing on insecurities of wanting to feel purposeful and useful and create self-worth and blah, blah, blah. Um, That's part of it. But I would like to think (laughs) that most of it is that nothing to me is more important in the world than being in service. It's helping. Like it's the strongest antidepressant I've ever taken is being a good person. And I really believe in the stuff that I've made, uh, that we've made because, you know, any good entrepreneur will never – claim victory mm. by themselves like it is you are the sum of the parts um and so I, I think this this work is worthwhile i think it works and i love it like you know some of most of what i do if no one used it or looked at it or listened to it i would still froth on that experience i mean i'm slightly over indexed on the business side of things now in terms of just time spent doing business stuff when i just want to spend time doing mental health stuff Mm. but when that ratio is right i'm like the other night i was at a party it was midnight people were getting smashed and on drugs and i was tucked in bed literally writing a linkedin post about entrepreneurship and i wouldn't have it any other way (laughs) like that I love it. And so, you know, the whole adage of enjoy enjoy the process um, and fall in love with the why because it can overcome almost anyhow. Mate, you've been a, a gentleman in sharing all that insight. You've got so many wise ways of speaking. And that last point, I think for anyone listening, be okay with finding that and just get involved in the things that make you light up because uh, at the end of the day... You're only on this earth a little while. Yeah. You might as well give it a good crack. Amen. As you are, my friend. So thank you very much, Mitch. Thank you. Can I give a slight plug to my businesses? You may. All right. So for me, Mitch Wallace, M-I-T-C-H-W-A-L-L-I-S. Find me on all the socials or check out uh, either Heart on My Sleeve, my mental health organization, particularly if you're looking at workplace wellness. Uh, check out Calm Water, which is my stress and anxiety supplement, sachet that you can put in drinking water. It's awesome. Calmwater.org. Uh, and I'm also a part of Heaps Normal, the non- number one non-alcoholic beer in Australia. That's a boutique non-alcoholic beer. Um, in, it'll be in a store anywhere near you in Australia. I am a big fan of it. It actually, there are a couple of cans in my fridge. Good friend there of mine go. who has gone sober has gone strong on Heaps Normal. How good. And he knows who you is, Lee. Um, <laughs> so I might have to try that. But, mate, um, yeah, get behind Mitch's stuff. You know, it's, he's, everything has that thread of looking after oneself. Looking after yourself is in all of those three Keeping it real. Number one lesson, the truth will set you free. Yeah, mate. Thank you so much. Cheers.